Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Hi everyone, welcome once again to this gathering, this gathering of, the, of New Hope Fellowship on this gloriously beautiful Resurrection Sunday. It's wonderful to gather with you so we can celebrate and worship our risen Savior, our risen King. Hey, um, thank you, Brian, for the update regarding uh, the, the family that we're seeking to serve through Hearts and Homes. Next week, Brian will probably be up here again sharing some needs, as he alluded to, some more pressing, um, ongoing needs that we can um, focus on and, and seek to, to meet um, as members of, of the church. And he'll probably list uh, the different leaders of the various teams that, that make up the Hearts and Homes team, um, the leader of the, the you know, who's, who's spearheading um, our education efforts, who's spearheading our um, medical care efforts, who's, you know, and, and, and all the other areas. And as you heard Brian describe, we're seeking to serve this, this family in a pretty holistic way. Um, it's multifaceted. The needs are and the ways to serve are multifaceted. So he'll probably list the names of those people that you can get in touch with to find out how you can serve more. But um, today, I just wanted to mention, because um, he's not going to say this, but, but if we could just be in particular prayer for Brian and for Shaylin, Hosa, who are from, from the inception, from the beginning, were really the, the impetus behind this effort to serve a refugee family and are bearing, a, lots of people are, are bearing the burden, but they are, um, they're, they're bearing an inordinate amount of that burden. A, a, a sizable portion of the work is falling on, on them, and they are happily and, and excellently carrying out that work, but they need our prayer. Um, so let, let's be in particular prayer for them. Yeah, and we'll pray for them now, even as we pray uh, before jumping into God's word. Lord, we thank you for the work that you do through flawed, um, imperfect, uh, sinful people in churches like us. And we thank you that you can use us to bless a family that uh, we didn't even know existed a month ago. A family that's new to this area. You've told us to love our neighbors, Lord, and you've told us especially to show love and welcome to the sojourner, the foreigner displaced. And so we want to do that, but it's hard. It's hard because of our own sin, and it's hard because of the limitations we, we face. And so we pray again, as Brian prayed earlier, that you would help us, that you would help us, and that you would bless this family through us and through many other means too. But we pray also for Brian and Shaylin and little Lily. We ask that you would uphold this family, and we ask that as they serve, that they would feel that they are being served by this body that you've put in place here at New Hope. Lord, as we turn our attention to your holy word, we ask that you would open up our eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is and to love him and to believe in him and to serve him all our days. 
We ask that in his name. Amen. Thank you, Sindri, for reading God's word to us. Um, Those words that Sindri just read to us might not feel like typical Easter content because they don't mention the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What are we doing here on Easter? We're not even talking about the resurrection. It's it's crazy, right? But we will see that these words do, in fact, point us to the resurrection. The words that she just read to us are from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. This is a book of the Bible that we as a church have just begun to walk through. Just last Sunday, we started. And these words that that Sindri read to us, they, from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 18, they show us something that we really need to see about Jesus In a nutshell, here's what I hope we all walk away seeing and believing today. That Jesus, the Son of God, he identifies with us. And he won't stop moving toward us to rescue us. If you were here on Friday night for our Good Friday service, we saw uh, then that, that Jesus, the rejected Savior, welcomes us and won't stop welcoming us. What we see today is that he goes even further than just welcoming us. He identifies with us. He identifies with you. And he won't stop moving toward you to rescue you. We got two short scenes in front of us today from the Gospel of Mark. One of them is we're going to see Jesus in the water, and then we're going to see Jesus in the wilderness. So let's look at each of these. Let's start with Jesus in the water. Verse 9 of Mark chapter 1 tells us that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here, here's, this, the, here's the introduction, the first time that Jesus is, is mentioned as, as appearing on the scene in Mark. He's an unknown uh, son of a carpenter. He's from a small town called Nazareth and a place called Galilee. He walks all the way to this river where his cousin, John, John is his cousin by the way, is baptizing people. And if we want to know what that all means, we can go back to verse 4 because it provides some background. In verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Remember that word, that's important. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John is calling the people of Israel to repent. Come to the river and repent. And repent simply means to to change direction. So if your life is heading this way, right, all your goals, your hopes, they're all pointed here, you, you turn around and you set a new course. It means to turn away from what you shouldn't be trusting in, turn away from what you should not be living for, from what you should not be doing and pursuing, and instead turn toward what is good, turn towards what is worthy of your life. That's repentance. So John was calling the people to repent and receive forgiveness from God. Even as they, as they came to the river and they confessed to God, that is, they admitted, they owned the ways that they had been leading misdirected lives. And he called them to act all of this out symbolically the act of baptism, which means getting in the water, being immersed, getting wet in that water, immersed as a, as a sign of cleansing, and a sign of renewal, a sign of a new way of life. You see, that was all captured in that picture of baptism in the River Jordan. And these crowds of people came to the river, 
They answered John's call. Multitudes of people showed up, it seems, because they must have realized that they needed repentance. (laughs) These people must have realized that they needed forgiveness, or else why would they have shown up? They must have realized that they were living in a wrong way. Perhaps they realized that their, their attention and their hopes were pointed in the wrong direction. I wonder if you can relate to that feeling. Have you ever felt like you're living in the wrong way? Perhaps you're not even sure what it would look like to live in the right way, but you know there's something wrong about the way you're living. It's, it's not working. It doesn't feel right. It feels unsatisfying. Perhaps there's guilt that you carry for the way that you're living. For instance, perhaps you feel like you prioritize the wrong things. Have you ever felt that way? I'm prioritizing the wrong things, or you feel like you're, you're trusting the wrong things. Or perhaps you feel like you're pursuing things that are not worthy of your pursuit. I wonder if you can relate to that, that, that sense of need for change. This need to, you, this desire deep down to, to, to turn towards something better. Well, those people who showed up at the River Jordan felt that. Perhaps they felt like they were wasting their time on things that don't matter. You ever feel that way? You're just wasting your time? Or you're putting your hopes in things that keep letting you down? <laughs> and you're tired of just doubling down or finding something else to put your hope in? Or you just feel like you're heading in the wrong direction? direction. If you've ever felt that way, or if you do feel that way, know that that John was calling people like you, people like me, and he was saying, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to be forgiven for your misdirected lives and to be redirected towards something much, much better. The fact that so many people showed up at that river, it says that there, there must have been a great need in that place. So many people must have felt lost and misdirected. Well, Jesus of Nazareth shows up at that river to be baptized, and that's surprising. At least it is to me. Maybe it is to you because Jesus, we learn elsewhere in the Bible, is the only person who never needed repentance. Like, he never needed to be redirected because he was always headed in the right direction. He was always oriented towards what was right and what was good. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us that he was without sin. That is, he, he never strayed from what was best. He never strayed from the perfect will of his father, God. In fact, one of the other gospel records, the gospel of Matthew, tells us that when, when Jesus showed up to be baptized, at first, John refused. John says, I need to be baptized by you. I'm the sinner here. And do you come to me? And Jesus said, yeah, I'm coming to you, baptize me. But why? Why would he do that? Here's the answer, New Hope. Jesus was identifying with the people that he came to rescue. By walking into that water, he was identifying with the people that he came to rescue. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need cleansing. And John knew that. John was very clear on that. You know how I know? Because John called Jesus, his cousin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lamb of God means the perfect, sinless, unstained one who would be sacrificed to save stained, imperfect ones like us. 
So, so, so by showing up at that river, Jesus was not admitting his need for forgiveness and repentance, but he was identifying, he was relating to, he was aligning himself with imperfect, misdirected, sinful folks like us. Because, because in order to rescue us, he had to first identify with us. That was God's plan. The rescuer would take his place among us, become like us, in order to rescue us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, For our sake God made him, that is made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus would eventually carry, he, he would own our sins on the cross. He carried them there and paid for them. But, but as we look at this early scene in his ministry life in Mark chapter 1, what we see is that, is that Jesus started owning our sin here already when he came to the Jordan. Because right there he was associating himself. He stood in line with that long line of sinners. He took his place on that queue by the river he joined all the folks who knew they needed forgiveness. He was numbered with them. He was numbered with us. And so you see, as he was entering that river, he was already owning our sins. And when he, when he, when he was baptized, it, it, it foreshadowed his crucifixion. I love the way... One teacher and author puts it, Sinclair Ferguson, he puts it this way. If you heard of him say it, it would sound a lot cooler because he's got a cool Scottish accent. But he says, as, as we see Jesus here in the water, he already indicates how he will become our Savior. By standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins, he allowed that water, polluted by those sins, to be poured over his perfect being. He stood in the water that had been polluted by the sins of all those penitent, repenting folks, and he let that water cover him. You see, Jesus was willing to be covered by, he was in fact willing to be drowned in our sins and our failures. About three years later, when Jesus was about to be crucified, he said these ominous words They're in Luke 12. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He had already been baptized in the water three years earlier. Now he's saying, I've got this other baptism that's waiting for me, and, and, and I'm, I'm troubled. I'm anxious until it happens. And he's using a metaphor. He's using a metaphor to talk about the brutal death that awaited him. When he would hang on a cross, he'd be, in a sense, flooded by, drowned by the wrath of God. He would be publicly punished for sins that he did not commit, but we did. So, so this earlier baptism in the Jordan, it foreshadowed that baptism, the brutal baptism that he would experience on the cross, when he would be immersed in order to pay for our sins. So that's why Jesus showed up there. And something amazing happened when Jesus came out of the river. 
Did you notice this when, when it was being read to us? Verse 10 says of, of Mark 1, it says, And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Hmm. Three years later, when Jesus hung on a cross for us, and he was covered in our sin, and he was drowning in the just wrath of God, he'd cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would feel the sense of abandonment. But here, here, as he stands at the river before God his Father, and he's just beginning that walk towards the cross, his father reminds him of what's true, that he is not abandoned. His father reminds him, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You see, Jesus would eventually face shame and death and utter rejection, but right here, he's reminded, you're my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I'm fully delighted, fully satisfied with you. I love you. That's what he hears from his father. And you know what? He would receive that kind of affirmation again from his father after all the pain and the shame of the cross when he would rise from the grave. When he would rise from the grave, Philippians 2 says that Jesus was, was he humbled himself By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, there's the shame, there's the rejection. But then what follows it? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when Jesus walked into that river, he was identifying with us, and it foreshadowed his crucifixion. And when he emerged from that river, it foreshadowed his resurrection. It it pointed ahead to the glory and and, and the, the affirmation that he'd receive from the Father when his mission was done. And he walked out of his tomb You know, many important people have been uh, executed over the course of history. Many important people have been uh, assassinated across history. Perhaps you can think of some of the names that you learned in history class. When I think assassination, my mind immediately goes to Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, Mohandas Gandhi. If you're more into music than politics, then maybe, maybe John Lennon comes to mind others. But, you know, although all those people were assassinated, we don't look at any one of those deaths and call it the assassination. If I were to say to you, hey, do you remember the date of the assassination? You'd say, which one? But we do, however, describe the cross of Jesus as the crucifixion. We don't even have to say the crucifixion of Jesus. As soon as we say the crucifixion, we know who we're talking about. Even though thousands of other people were crucified, In the Roman Empire, 
And that means that his death holds a, a unique status in history. But we have to ask, what makes his death so different than all the others? Well, it's simply this. He rose from the grave and the others didn't. He rose from the grave. A priest named Fleming Rutledge wrote a fantastic book called The Crucifixion. And in it she writes this. If Christ was not raised from the dead, we would never have heard of him. Tens of thousands were crucified in the Roman era. Tens of thousands. Of all of these, the name of Jesus of Nazareth is the only one known to us. He was consigned to the oblivion designed by Rome for crucified victims, but within weeks was proclaimed as the name above all names. This is what makes Jesus' crucifixion, his assassination, his execution unique. You know, crucifixion, I said that we talked about this on Friday night, was designed to be the ultimate form of rejection. It was society's way in the Roman era of saying, we don't like you, we hate you, we have no place for you in the society. In fact, we want to erase you from history. And so the names of those who were crucified were largely forgotten. Even their families would be hesitant to bring up their names because it would bring such shame on them. Yet the name of Jesus is the most famous name in history across the globe. Why? It's only because he rose from the grave. It's why his death commands special attention. It's why his name stands alone as, and his crucifixion, his death stands alone as unrepeatable. And it's why his story carries history-shaping significance and power. Yes, Jesus, he, he identified with us. He, he took our place when he perished on that cross, and then he rose from the dead, having paid for all of our sins. That's something of the significance of the scene in the water. But let's see what's going on in the wilderness here. What's the significance of this when we see Jesus in the wilderness, in the... Uh, in the Old Testament, which is more than half of the, the Bible, the, the Old Testament is a story of Israel, the story of a, of a nation, of a people. And at pivotal points throughout that history of Israel, when God would prepare certain Israelite folks for some important special purpose, he was about to send them on a mission, they were about to be given some important authoritative role, he would anoint them and he would say, we often read these words, the Spirit of God descended upon him. Here's some examples in the life of King Saul, in the life of King David, judges like Othniel and Gideon and Samson. They were all descended upon by the Holy Spirit to empower them and anoint them and, and, and prepare them for important work. So when Jesus is baptized in the, in the Jordan and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, it's a significant event, no doubt. But it wasn't completely foreign to the Jews who were there. If they knew their history, they would say, oh, I think I know what this means. They would have thought of all the other important people through their history, figures, all those figures in history who, who, who had been anointed by the Spirit, who had been descended upon by the Spirit. And, and it would have made sense to them. And they would have said, okay, this means it's clear that this Jesus of Nazareth is being set apart for something major. But what makes his particular experience unique is that, well, for one, the sky tore open. I don't even want to speculate on what that looks like. I'll let your imaginations kind of think about what it looks like for the sky. 
to be rent. <laughs> but then the other thing that makes it unique is that God speaks and calls Jesus his son. Hmm. So get that. Picture, picture the scene if we can. God the Father is speaking. This is my son. God the Son is in the water, having just been baptized, and God the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove. It, it, it's, it's, it's the whole Godhead. It's, it's the Trinity. It's, it's, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all present and named. And Mark wants us to see that. It's like he's drawing our attention to it. It's the God of Christianity, that mystery of one God in three persons, united Yet three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all present and named right here. This is a momentous event in human history. And at that moment, all kinds of ancient prophecies were being fulfilled. And, and I wonder how many of the people there recognized that. I think John probably recognized it. He saw it coming. But all kinds of, of Old Testament prophecies that, that, that promised that, that a savior king, a chosen anointed savior king would one day come to rescue his people. I'll just give you two examples of those prophecies. Behold, Isaiah 42 says, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Does that sound familiar? I'm well pleased with him. My soul delights in him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on earth and the coastlands wait for his, for his law. Isaiah 61, another powerful prophecy, says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see, the fulfillment of all that was starting here. Jesus of Nazareth, he, he would soon begin to do all these very things. He's going to start releasing people from bondage, spiritual bondage, and the bondage of physical ailments and disabilities. He's going to be healing people. He's going to be comforting people with wisdom and righteousness. Eventually, he will return to judge the world, and he's going to establish perfect justice. He will bring Full relief to the poor and complete wholeness to the brokenhearted. But, but it's all starting right here at this river. So given all that, we might expect that the very next scene, who would you expect to see? Maybe the next scene is going to be Jesus marching away from that river and starting to heal some people, teach some people, perform some miraculous public works. But instead, look at what happens as soon as he's baptized. Verse 12 says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So instead of walking out of that water and into the city, to begin helping people, teaching people, gathering a crowd. Instead, he heads out into the wilderness. The crowds were at the Jordan. He leaves the crowds and heads out into the desert. And he's directed to do so by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, wilderness does mean desert. It, it means desolate place. It's a dangerous place. There are wild animals there, Mark says. 
don't think scenic. It may have been scenic, but it was also, it was also extremely dangerous. Any of you ever watch a, a reality show called Alone? I feel like I may have brought this up in the past because this show fascinates me. It's this, it's this reality show where they, uh, some trained survivalists get, get dropped alone in some kind of extreme wilderness environment. And uh, they're just given a few tools. They're given some cameras to, to film themselves and nothing else. And they're told, fend for yourself. If you need to be rescued, we'll come get you. And whoever can, whoever can last the longest in the wilderness wins, wins the, uh, the prize. One thing that taught me, um, besides the fact that I would never, I was going to say I would never win a, a, a competition like that, but I should say I would never enter a competition like that. But one thing it taught me, another thing it taught me, is that nature is a lot more dangerous than I realized. And, it's, and in fact, all these trained survivalists, as soon as they get out there, they realize that nature is a lot more dangerous than they thought. Some of them freak out early and bail. Some of them lose their mind out there. Well, Jesus was not just facing nature and the, the threat of the wild. He was facing Satan, the enemy himself. We don't get those details from, from Mark, but the gospel, according to Matthew, tells us more about what Jesus experienced in, in the wilderness when he was tempted and attacked by, by Satan. In fact, uh, Many of you youth group students learned about that from Brian and from Joe. All right, so maybe, maybe as you were learning about that, you imagined what, what that may have looked like. But it's interesting to think that Jesus was affirmed by his father. I delight in you. I'm well pleased with you. You're my son. And then sent into the wild. For 40 days. That's a significant number, right? 40. The people of Israel were in the wilderness for how long? 40 years after God freed them from slavery in Egypt. That's the story of Exodus and Joshua. They come out, out of slavery, they go into the wilderness, and they wandered in the wild for four whole decades until they reached the land that God had promised to them. And, and you know what they had to do, finally, when they, when they came to the land that God had promised to them, you know what they had to do to finally enter that land? They had to cross the River Jordan. They had to get across that river. So, so over history, what's happened is that Jordan River has come to symbolize for, for the, the people of Israel, it symbolizes salvation, rescue, peace. On the other side of that, if we can get over that river, there's peace on the other side. There's rest. God freed them from bondage in, in Egypt, from the oppression that they were experiencing. In spite of their sins, he still loved them. In mercy, he frees them. And then he leads them across the wilderness and eventually across this Jordan, the final step, and into the promised land. So crossing the Jordan meant escaping slavery, but it also meant leaving behind the dangers, the, the heat, the hunger, the, the pain of the wilderness to finally find peace, to finally find rest. Now, now, compare that with what Jesus is doing, all right? Jesus came from heaven, the scriptures tell us. That place of perfect peace and rest. And he walked into the River Jordan. And when he came out of that River Jordan, he headed out into the danger of the wilderness. You see, you see for Jesus, entering the Jordan represented leaving safety, moving toward danger. You see, heading into the desert for him meant to face the enemy, to face the effects of sin. To face temptation, he goes into the Jordan to come out and cross over into 
the wilderness. This is kind of like the Exodus story in reverse, which is weird until you realize that Jesus is on a rescue mission. So what Mark is describing is, a, is, a, is this rescue mission from, from spiritual slavery, from spiritual bondage, and in order to perform that rescue, Jesus has to walk toward the danger and the pain and the broken world, toward the ruin, the evil, the death. So when Mark says at the beginning of his whole book, he says, here's the beginning of the gospel, he's announcing the start of this rescue story. The Savior is crossing Jordan, but in the opposite direction, to go into the wild to save us from the wild. Imagine a building going up in flames. There's people trapped inside, and and folks are doing all they can to get out, and they're fleeing the building, and all the movement is away from the building, but firefighters arrive on the scene, and they rush where? They rush into the fire in the opposite direction. That's Jesus on a mission of rescue. He's leaving behind safety. He's, He's enduring the heat. He's moving towards the smoke. Jesus wants all the smoke, as the kids say. He's he's rushing toward the people who need him in order to drag them out. He doesn't fear it. Following the the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, police released body cam footage from from two police officers. I don't know if you watched this. I I didn't have the heart to watch it. I couldn't bring myself to. But I hear that it it showed uh, these two young police officers in the school building, and shots can be heard, and kids and staff are scrambling and hiding, but these officers, they rush toward the bullets. They rush in the dire- urgently in the direction of the shooter. They go into the wild, uncontrolled environment to disable the shooter and to save lives. And this is a tiny picture Jesus, for you, for me. In a sense, his entire life on earth was a sojourning in the wilderness. He moved towards the violence, towards the fire. He entered a world that was decimated by Adam and the sons and daughters of Adam. That first man, Adam, was given a beautiful world to cultivate and to keep, but he and and the rest of us have ruined it. And so Jesus crossed the river toward us. I love the way a preacher named Alistair Begg puts it. He says, Jesus entered the world not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. You ever leave your house tidy and clean but return to find someone messed it up? Maybe you rented out a property, it was destroyed, you come back and now it's on you to fix this place up. Jesus entered a world that was not in the state in which he had created it, but he entered anyway to fix it and to forgive those who wrecked it and to heal those who, in wrecking it, wrecked themselves. That's the gospel. God comes into the wilderness of this world in order to restore our broken relationships with him, our broken relationships with one another, our broken relationship with ourselves. And he relentlessly moves toward us to rescue us. And he doesn't stop. As, as I end today, I just want to leave you with a couple of thoughts, takeaways, applications you might think of them as. Here's one, just three of them, quick. The first one is, are, are you willing to be rescued? 
are you willing to be rescued? Because Jesus is still rescuing people. He still identifies with us. He identifies with you. He, took, he takes your place and he moves toward you. And he will not stop moving towards you. And so I want to encourage you in, in love to, to not resist, to not refuse his rescue, to not run away from him, but to run toward him, to run toward safety, to run towards the rescuer. If you feel, as I asked before, if you feel a need for repentance, you feel like you need change in your life, something's not right, you feel guilt, you feel shame, there's something you want, don't, don't ignore those feelings. Don't just stew in guilt or shame. Instead, talk to Jesus about them. Confess them to him. He'll give you all the power you need, all the grace you need to repent, to turn away from anything you need to turn away from. He doesn't look at you and say, do better. A rescuer doesn't move, doesn't come into the place of danger and say, hey, everybody, I hope you get out. I hope you work hard to get out of here. No, he comes in to rescue, to embrace, to carry you out, and to breathe life into you if you need it. This is what Jesus does. If you feel the need for repentance in your life, you feel burdened by decisions you've made, by the direction you're heading in, bring this to Jesus who's moving towards you. The very fact that we're talking about him today is evidence that he's moving towards you. He's alive. That's the only reason we're here talking about him is because he's alive. And he still persists in your direction. But number two, if you've been rescued by Jesus, here's a, here's a very easy question to answer. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Part of the reason I'm bringing this up is because we've got a baptism uh, service coming up on the 30th, which is going to be a wonderful opportunity for us to witness the baptism of uh, several uh, brothers in Christ here. But it's a good opportunity, too, to think, have you been baptized? Symbolically, what you do when you're being baptized is you are, in a sense, symbolically owning your own sin, like those Israelites did when they came to the river. They were saying, I own it. I confess it. I need repentance. I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. But you're also identifying with Jesus when you come into the waters of baptism. You're saying, I I, uh, his death counts for me. His resurrection counts for me. I have new life in him. And so if Jesus has rescued you and you haven't been baptized yet, let's talk about that. Talk to people close to you about that. And lastly, lastly, if you have been rescued by Jesus... And God the Father says this of you today, even now, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. I want to encourage us to rest in that, to rest in that. When, when you hear words of, when you, when you feel guilt, when you feel shame, when you feel pressure to rest in the words of the Father, who looks at you and says, I'm pleased with you. Because I'm pleased with my son Jesus. And by faith, you've been connected to Jesus. I'm pleased, as pleased with you as I am with him. No matter what. Let that motivate us to obey. Let that motivate us towards good works and holiness, certainly. But let it also give us rest 
a sense of deep inner peace. And let those words of the Father give us confidence too because we're still, to some degree, we're still living in a wilderness environment right here, right? We, we, you might, we might think, and on the one hand, I've been rescued by Jesus. He has forgiven me of my sins. He has given me new life, and yet I'm still awaiting his return. So there's a sense in which I'm still kind of this in-between. I've been rescued, but I'm still in this wilderness. I'm still experiencing wilderness stuff, right? Like danger, like illness, oppression. You're not abandoned. You're not abandoned. Just as Jesus was not abandoned in his wilderness experience, you are not abandoned here. And just as his wilderness experience was not the end of the story for him, it won't be the end of the story for you. Rest and glory await you in Christ, the resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for stubbornly persistently, unstoppingly moving toward us. Thank you for taking our failures and sins upon yourself, bearing the cost for our misdirected lives. Help us trust you and help us worship you today as our risen King. Amen.